Before we dive into this episode, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you love listening to this show, please take a second and leave a review. It'll help boost the show so that others struggling in a toxic workplace can find it. Thanks. I was in my early 20s, actually, when I finally moved into the city and I had been working at the firm for a couple of years. And I knew at the firm where I started is not where I wanted to be. I wanted to sort of work my way up and get into, you know, the more I was doing back office operations and trade processing. And I wanted to be on the front end trading, but learning about how the trading desks work, the best way is to be trade support and work in operations and get the behind the scenes of everything and then watch the everyday of of what goes on. This is Elizabeth. Elizabeth moved to New York City in her early 20s after graduating college. When she landed a position with the trading firm on Wall Street, she saw the stars align. So I knew I wanted to work my way up to trading and I knew I wanted to be in a position where I would sort of create my own little world and earn more money and be a part of the big hullabaloo on the front end versus the back office side. So when I did get that first job from my back office job, I was elated. I was beyond excited. I even felt a little bit like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Can I handle this or is it going to be too much? I was so excited that I was like, oh my God, is this going to be too hard for me? I didn't even stop to think of that. It wasn't at first. It was terrific. It was terrific at first. Elizabeth had a great mentor who believed in her and she would quickly be managing her own book of clients. But once a merger changed the structure of the company, Elizabeth's trajectory at the firm would change leading to a situation that would ultimately change her life. My name's Carly, and this is Toxic Workplace, a podcast that gives a platform to those who have survived a highly toxic work experience, only to come out with newfound wisdom and a renewed sense of self. A toxic workplace is more than just the daily grind. It's a soul-crushing experience that will chip away at your sanity until you're about to lose your mind. It's an abusive relationship that's hard to leave. And the longer you stay, the more you lose sight of who you set out to be. In this episode, we hear from Elizabeth Miles Graham, the author of You Know What They Say, which is her memoir about experiencing sexual harassment on Wall Street. When I first got hired on the trading desk, I was working for this woman, Roberta, Um, I talk about her in the book, my direct manager. And one of the other new hires was a person that graduated from an Ivy League school. And I remember Roberta actually said to me, Ivy League degree or not, I would rather have you on my side because of the worker that you are. I proved myself so quickly and Roberta saw it. She was a mentor. She was such a beautiful soul. She was hardcore and she didn't let anybody fuck with her for lack of a better way to put it. And I admired that. But I also thought to myself, eventually, when I am older, I will be like her. I almost didn't think I was allowed to sort of be like her when I was younger. Like I have to earn it. I have to work my way up to it. Roberta gave Elizabeth the boost of confidence she needed to succeed on Wall Street, which is highly male-dominated and intensely competitive. 
According to an article written by Julia Borston on CNBC.com, a 2017 report found that women in private equity firms comprise of 9% of senior executives and only 18% of total employees. It takes a badass bitch to rise up the ranks in one of these firms, and Roberta no doubt had what it took. Elizabeth saw herself in Roberta and vice versa. This inspired Elizabeth's drive to push for the top. But yeah, and I remember being really proud of it. And I remember thinking like, okay, I can see myself here for a very long time. Like there's enough room for growth. There's enough room. It's such a big firm. Like, you know, there's enough room to go places. At the time, there might have already been a lot of boys club and that culture in the firm. It just wasn't where I was at the time. And I think primarily it was due to Roberta. I think her group and who she chose to have working for her were all respectable, amazingly supportive team players. And when she left was when our whole division was reorganized. A new CEO came in and kind of brought a bunch of people in, scattered them about. And the dynamic of our group specifically, everything shifted, everything shifted. And they were all men in charge in all the important places, which normally fine. My dad is a man. I know his work ethic. There were, you know, lawyers that worked for my father that remember when I was born that were at my wedding. Good quality people, you know. So these men, I almost noticed it right away. And I'm like, oh gosh, they're like kind of like the jerks in high school, that clique that just are mean people and pick on others and they think they're above everybody else. I kind of sensed that right away. And so initially I was like, eh, like whatever. So they're immature, no big deal. I can I can handle it. But the manipulation is what really sort of got me. The manipulation from these men was very subtle, like a slow burn that slowly creeps in. Elizabeth's direct supervisor was charming and complimentary of her. At first, she felt appreciated, despite the fact that her client book was being taken away and new, more administrative tasks were being assigned. This shift affected everybody. So there were some people that were amazing to work with before when Roberta was there that sort of changed a little bit in order to fit in with the new group. And honestly, it worked for them. And can I blame them? No, they knew what it took to be in the in crowd and be in the group that gets the better accounts, gets the better clients, gets paid better, that gets the pats on the back. So they changed and it worked for them. Okay, so I have to follow along too. And then I'll be in and I'll be making the money and I'll be important in this group. I didn't realize though, I didn't count. As much as I thought I did and I was just like those guys, I thought I could do what they did, I couldn't. The newer management team that came in, they all knew right away. They just didn't take me seriously from the start, but they fed me the bullshit. They were like, oh yes, you do X, Y, and Z for me, please, because if that work doesn't get done, this desk can't function. You're terrific. You're so wonderful. Oh my goodness, this couldn't be done without you. I'm thinking to myself, yes, this is awesome. I'm in. They like me. I'm in. 
And when my responsibilities started shifting to more assistant-like tasks, things that I didn't certainly didn't need a trading license to do, they were patronizing, being like, gosh, what would we do without you? And thank goodness you're here. And we're so lucky to have you. You know, my manager started, Todd started sort of fielding my phone calls for me because I was doing a lot of the other busy work that he needed me to do at the time that I thought was super important. And and a lot of it is important. Like it is important for people who are assistants. Their work is important. I'm not slamming organizing lunches, making dinner reservations, travel reservations, organizing golf outings. All of that stuff is super important to make an organization run successfully. I am saying I wasn't hired to do that. And I didn't get my business degree, take all of my series. The licenses for trading are all series. I took four different series exams to trade. So when they came in and they started shifting my responsibilities and my manager, Todd, was fielding my phone calls and totally being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All your accounts are still your accounts. You're getting credit for it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And he would say to me, after all, you're the one that nurtured this relationship. You're the one that turned the relationship into what it is. It's absolutely you're going to get credit for it. And I believed all of that because why wouldn't I? Elizabeth's supervisor, Todd, promised her that the administration tasks she was doing were only temporary and eventually they'd hire an assistant and she could move on to what she was working on before the corporate shift. He assured her that her clients were still hers since she was the one who onboarded them and managed them in the first place. And Elizabeth believed him. She was a trusting person. But when it came time for bonuses, she got the short end of the stick and started to realize what was happening. When we are surrounded our whole lives by people with, you know, the utmost integrity, and if you meet an occasional jerk here and there, you think it's rare. And I just assumed that what he was telling me was the truth. When it came time to get our numbers for our bonuses, I was in shock. I was literally in shock because he looked right at me. He looked me in the eye and said, well, you're not in a position of earning anymore. So we can't give you a higher bonus. In fact, we can't give you what you got last time. We're going to cut it even because you're not in a money-making you know, position. You're not earning for the firm. Knowing damn well that they completely took advantage of me because I let them and they knew that I would. That was another instance that I was like, hold up to myself because I was scared. I was scared to say anything. What was I going to do? I'm not doing that work for you. And I wouldn't be surprised if they turned around and said, fine, you're fired. And all we have to do is say, oh, yeah, no, she couldn't handle her book, whatever. It was a very enlightening moment when I was like thinking about the legality behind what they were doing. Not only is it not fair, is it legal? Like, can they really do that? And I was like, oh, yeah, there's absolutely nothing that says they can't do that. That was sort of when I thought to myself, okay, my plan is starting to derail. What am I doing? Where do I want to see myself? Because this wasn't it. And so in that moment, I'm like, all right, keep your head down, do your job, but look over your shoulder, keep everyone at arm's length and try and protect yourself a little bit. That's really when things started to snowball. It was all downhill from there. 
taking advantage of Elizabeth's trust and willingness as a way to mold her into an assistant is only half of the story. The other half is more painful. Elizabeth dealt with sexual harassment on a daily basis, but being young and trusting, she waved it off as something that was normal and part of working in corporate America. So the sexual harassment was actually pretty regular, but at the time, there were some things that I didn't think were such a big deal, like coming behind my desk and putting your hands on my shoulder. I would talk myself out of feeling uncomfortable because it happened so much. Men did it to women. Men did it to other men. There was touching. It was just, it was a thing. I don't know. I don't know why, because probably because we were all in close quarters. I think I I talk about it in the book. The size of our desks are like three feet wide and we're all like right on top of each other. And maybe that's why. But some of those small gestures were super inappropriate. And if they made me feel uncomfortable, I would talk myself out of feeling uncomfortable and say, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Meanwhile, they're my feelings. I should have listened to them, but I didn't. I just assumed it happens. This is, oh, I see it happening to other people too. Okay, it's not bad. But in a lot of instances, it escalated to more than just innocent putting a hand on somebody's shoulder. A big part of the finance industry is whining and dining clients. This was New York City, and the firm's clients were insanely wealthy. Part of managing their investments was taking them out on the city and showing them a good time. Elizabeth wasn't just invited as a tag-along. Many times, she would help orchestrate and plan these outings and was fully expected to be a part of it. At first, she was thrilled for the experience. But as time went on, the sexual harassment became more prevalent and even threatening. So I talk about in the book what it's like to go out and entertain clients after hours and how much a part of the job it was and how many times my boss told me, if you want to get ahead in this group, this is part of the job. You're building relationships. This is part of the work. And sure, a lot of times it was fun. I talked about going out after hours when Roberta was my manager and we had amazing conversations and She treated me and talked to our clients about me like I was her equal. And it was very clear I wasn't because I was, you know, 25 years to 30 years younger than she was. But she still treated me like I was her equal. And she made sure that she said, if the clients see you as my equal, they will treat you the way they treat me. And this didn't happen with my new managers. My direct manager, Todd, would hand me the company credit card and be like, go fetch us some drinks. So-and-so likes whiskey and -and so-and-so likes scotch. Like I was the waitress. It was like a drinking marathon. It was like college. It was like a frat party. And this was any given Thursday. This was like what you would do on a Saturday night in college. They were doing weeknights and sometimes several nights a week. And I thought, okay, they're heavier hitters. They're pulling in more money so they could spend more money. I have to prove that I can hang with them in order to be a part of that group. So this is who I have to answer to. This is who decides how much money I make. This is who decides 
you know, my bonus, my salary, my raise, my promotions. So I have to go along with what he says because my career depends on it. And so when I experienced a lot of the actual sexual harassment, I thought maybe because it wasn't in the four walls of our building, I didn't have a right to be upset or they weren't in the wrong because we weren't at work. I primarily thought that because they were so blatant with it. Like, how could this be illegal? They're doing it in front of everyone. They don't give a shit who sees. They don't care. So it can't be it can't be illegal. We're outside of the four walls of work. Maybe that's why. In her book, Elizabeth goes into more details about these nights out with clients and how her boss, Todd, belittled her in front of clients and was extremely inappropriate in what he said and did to her. She also talks about a character named Josh who made several aggressive attempts to get her alone with him. And I do go into great detail in this story about a character, Josh, who there was an incident where I had to actually call the police because he was drunk and everything he was doing was so inappropriate. And I was by myself. So I was scared. There were also instances with him where I felt like he was going to overpower me just by grabbing onto my arm. And I turned him down. And this was all because I turned him down for a date. He wanted me to go out with him. He was very persistent. And then when he got drunk, he was borderline scary. Uh, Maybe not even borderline. I was scared. And I worried about my safety when I was around him oftentimes. Flattery and grooming are tactics used by sexual predators. When someone is trying to win over your trust, they'll make you feel good. They'll make you feel special. And when that someone is your boss or somebody of perceived power, it feels that much more intoxicating when they give you attention and give you validating compliments. Elizabeth was young. She had never experienced this sort of treatment, nor had she worked in a highly regarded professional setting. It was the perfect storm. And it's easy to beat yourself up in hindsight. When you're in the eye of a storm, it's almost impossible to see what's happening on the outside. Whether it was the compliments about my work or the compliments about my appearance, I was flattered either way. It made me feel really good to be told things about, you know, my physical appearance and stuff like that. And it's just a pleasantry, you know, and that's it. I didn't necessarily think about the power trip behind it, the manipulation, all of that. I didn't think about the icky grossness of it, really, or even the things they would say about other women that they picked up at the bars or the things that would say if they ended up getting a hotel room in the city and not going home to their wives and children and talking about that in front of me and at First, the way they talked about it, again, I was like, ew, they're awful people. And I should have put two and two together. Okay, this guy wouldn't think twice about going home with someone else and staying in the city in a hotel room when his wife and kids are at home. 
Yet I believed him when he told me my work is so valuable and it's so important. Once Elizabeth realized what was going on, she wanted to put a stop to it, which is easier said than done. When you've been manipulated and have experienced sexual harassment, the idea of coming out and telling someone is overwhelming. This was a powerful company run by men worth millions of dollars. This was a career game changer. Elizabeth had high hopes for her career on Wall Street, and this was never in the plans. So sexual harassment was all simultaneously happening as I'm getting my accounts taken away from me. I'm getting paid less money. And it was over the course of like almost two years when I started to realize what was going down with the bonuses and then more and more the harassment was getting worse and worse. Then it became a question of, okay, but now what? Now what do I do? There weren't neon signs with arrows pointing me to this is who you should speak with when you're getting sexually harassed and discriminated against at work. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know if I should be telling our division manager, if I should find someone in HR. I didn't know. I wasn't sure what the proper course of action was. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it without telling someone in my family who was close to me so I had that support. And then there was part of me that was like, "Mm, maybe it'll change. Maybe in time things will change. I still had a small inkling of hope that things could change. Maybe it's not always going to be like this. Or maybe the next incident, I'll be able to stand my ground more firmly and the harassment or the discrimination won't be as bad. And so that was the next few months was figuring out, all right, I've decided this is all wrong, what's happening to me. I've decided that something needs to be done. But now it's a matter of now what? What do I do? Who do I talk to? Where do I go from here? And what do I say? And is anyone going to believe me? Is it going to fall on deaf ears? Is nothing going to happen? If something does happen, what's going to happen to me? Is everyone going to find out? Then what? So all of these questions are coming into my head. Eventually, Elizabeth told her parents what was happening, and they supported her decision to talk to someone else within the company that wasn't involved in the situation, but who had power to do something about it. Once I told my parents, my dad was like, okay, let's get the handbook. Let's get the rules. It's got to be somewhere. Let's find out where it is and of course you know 75 pages deep buried in font size four it's like if you need to make an official complaint go to your division head i didn't want to go to todd and i didn't want to go to his direct because i didn't trust them eventually got to the point where that trust was broken and they were part of the problem so telling them would have been a complete waste So that's why I went uh, above them. And I knew the guy, he had a very good reputation in the firm and he seemed trustworthy. And he was, and he absolutely did the right thing. When I told him, he directed me to an attorney in HR and another manager in HR. But after that meeting with him, I don't think I ever spoke or saw him again washed his hands of it and was like, all right, I'm done. It's all, it's all on you now. 
And I believe he did not want to ruin his relationship with Rich and Todd because he knew that they were good money makers for the firm. So the firm checked all the boxes to cover their asses and make it look like they were taking the right steps to fix things. But they weren't actually trying to resolve anything. They just wanted it to go away and use Elizabeth as an example for others possibly thinking about blowing a whistle. The firm did fire Josh, the one guy who made aggressive advances at her. But Todd was off the hook because she didn't have any, quote, proof, and they weren't about to fire someone who was heavily political within the firm and made them a lot of money. The firm may have made a few reprimands and fired the weakest link in the whole debacle, but what happened next was living hell for Elizabeth. Word was quickly spread that she was the reason for Josh's dismissal, and instead of having empathy for her, the people at the firm treated her with blatant disrespect, like a New Age scarlet letter. I did not receive the protection that I deserved for making my complaint. And everything was even worse than it was before I made the complaint because everyone then found out. It was like I was diseased, for lack of a better word. Nobody would come near me. Nobody would come near me. It was so downplayed, so much so that at certain points, I was told by HR or by the attorneys that I might be being oversensitive. It's not as bad as you think it is. People were angry at me. They didn't try to protect me in any way, shape, or form. I was sort of left in this limbo of, okay, proceed business as usual, but what do I do? I was a nuisance. They needed to squash the nuisance that I was. They needed to make an example of me. Look what happens to you if you complain. You are going to be isolated. You are going to be ostracized. And you're not going to know what to do with yourself. So think twice before you make an official complaint. I imagine that there was a better way for them to go about doing it. But they chose not to. I believe that they actively, consciously chose to do it the way that they did so that I was made an example of and this wouldn't snowball. There were probably many other women who were like, ooh, she spoke up, maybe I'll speak up. But they knew they had to nip that in the bud. Elizabeth went back to HR and pleaded for them to do something about the way she was treated. But HR and the company attorney told her that they did everything they were supposed to do and it wasn't an issue anymore. They told her she was overreacting. Eventually, she was told to take a leave of absence. It was during that time Elizabeth decided to seek out her own counsel, which would prove challenging. The attorneys she interviewed didn't think it was a case worth their time because the potential monetary gain was too low. One attorney was a total perv and asked her for more details about what specifically happened to her, which was totally unnecessary information needed up front. Finally, she found an attorney who agreed to take her case. And so I finally was like, all right, last time I'll try. I'll meet with this third attorney and see what happens. And lo and behold, she's a magnificent human being and so wonderful. And she reminded me a lot of Roberta, the same kind of gusto and badass bitch mentality in a good way, you know. And I'll never forget the feeling that I got. This sounds so weird to say but when she was like you absolutely have a case and I will take you on as a client 
I got chills on my whole body and felt at the same time like I had to throw up. It was a physical reaction to the relief because so much of my mental health had been so affected negatively by all of this. The self-doubt, the lack of self-worth, the second-guessing, you're such an idiot for even saying anything in the first place. Why would you have done You did this to yourself. You got yourself in this mess. You should have kept your mouth shut. You should have been a stronger person. You should have stood up to them on your own and not let them treat you like this in the first place. All of that, it was like all of those feelings were escaping my body through every pore when Julie told me she would take my case. I was validated by a complete stranger. She didn't have to agree with me. She wasn't my mom or dad or best friend from childhood. She said I had a case. And so, oh my gosh, someone from the outside of my little circle of love and trust believes me. And validated what I was feeling. And that's not to say those feelings never came back because I talk about that. They certainly come back a lot. But in that brief moment, I will never forget how I felt when she said she would take my case. And then like the, that night a little bit, it, it almost felt like my muscles ache, like a flu or something. And I feel like I was letting my muscles finally relax. Like they had just been tense. It was physical. It was such a like, like a huge sigh and like a deep breath and like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. You do, you can do this. You can fight this battle. Elizabeth's book goes further into detail on the mediation of her case and the long hours of back and forth with the corporate attorneys. But in the end, she did receive a monetary gain, but not the justice she was hoping for in terms of changing the way the firm dealt with sexual harassment, and more specifically, her direct supervisor, Todd, getting a mark on his trading license. The aftermath of dealing with the emotional stress and sudden halt in her career dreams took the greatest toll on her mental stability and well-being. Once everything came to a screeching halt, Elizabeth spiraled into a deep depression. When all was said and done, right, and my case was over and I was getting ready to move on, and midway through, I met my therapist and I talk about Dr. Alice. She saved my life. There's no better way to say it because even after everything was said and done, the downward spiral I went through was one of the darkest times of my life. And it took a lot to come out of that. I did end up in a hospital for two weeks as an inpatient and then for several months and as an outpatient because of my mental health was so deteriorated. And like I said, my situation was over with. Like grief, some people don't feel their grief right away. It takes time. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're like, whoa. The severity of Elizabeth's mental health put her life at risk. She was using alcohol and pills to help cope with her emotions. She struggled with suicidal thoughts, which she explains next of her self-loathing and depressive thoughts that would flood her mind on a daily basis. It was helplessness. It was overwhelming feelings of sadness and helplessness. Just thirsty for a pick-me-up. No matter what I did, the negative thoughts, the you fucking moron, 
how could you let this happen to you? The, what are you going to do with your life? You complete fucking waste of space. You're an idiot now. You ruined a good thing. You could have and should have and would have, but you didn't. And that's your fault. How about we drink this bottle of wine and I talk about sort of manipulating doctors to get medication. I mean, it was bad. Numb the feelings, numb the pain, don't process it. And so when you're numbing it, they're still there and they're still overpowering you and they're still infiltrating your every fiber of your being. And it's so powerful that it overtakes any logic. You just don't want to be breathing air anymore. It's exhausting just to exist. And so part of me at the time would have to talk myself out of it. Just kind of like, all right, you know what? Just drink it off. Drink it off. You'll be fine. Um, There were bouts of insomnia, which made me foggy, a little delusional, little distorted reality from drinking, lack of sleep, popping pills, like the whole bit. And it got to a point where my therapist, even she knew that I was in a really bad, helpless place. My therapist knew that I needed something more intense. And so she took it upon herself to delicately say to me, you need to be away in a hospital, in a facility where you have 24-hour care. And so I went away as an inpatient for 14 days. The mental instability is an important part of Elizabeth's story. The amount of courage, strength, and perseverance she pulled together to get her through the sexual harassment case completely drained her. And when all was said and done, she questioned all of it. She questioned whether it was worth the fight, whether it was worth derailing her career, and whether she could continue and find the gusto she once had to take the world by storm. Without her dream, she was searching for meaning and new light, which at one of her darkest moments seemed non-existent. But with a determined spirit somewhere inside and the help of her therapist, support groups, and family and friends who love her, she was able to pull herself out of a darkened state and find her purpose. As part of the therapy process, Elizabeth's therapist had her write about her experience. And so she was like, I want to do something with you that's a little more concrete. She's like, write your situation down. Just get it out of you on paper. And the act of the writing will help your process. And I was like, okay. And I wrote things down almost like a journal. Dates, things that happened, backtracked and just started from, you know, where it all began. And sort of when the Me Too movement started happening and I thought about how can I contribute to this more than, you know, writing a check or liking posts on Instagram. And I was like, why don't I share my story? Why don't I tell people what happened to me so that other people read it, hear it, learn about it and think, huh, I can do something about this. And so what was part of my recovery, a tool that was part of my recovery, ended up being, you know, 15 years later, a tool for me to help 
actively make change. Using our experiences to make a change is at the heart of humanity. We cannot grow as a society if these challenging issues aren't seen or heard. Sexual harassment is a delicate challenge, especially in the workplace. It requires an empathetic approach to understand that the person on the receiving end wasn't simply just offended, but objectified and preyed upon. When manipulation is factored in, it becomes mentally abusive and hard to pin down because oftentimes the perpetrator has set up a smokescreen so thick, even the most clever attorney can't cut through. If I didn't go through that and I didn't write this book and hopefully if and when it does help another woman, then maybe I wouldn't have saved that woman. Not saved. I'm not saying I'm a savior. I'm just saying like maybe she reads the book and thinks, okay, I can do this. I'm going to make an official complaint. That wouldn't have happened had I not gone through what I went through. I wouldn't be raising my daughter the way I'm raising her had I not gone through that. I wouldn't have married the man that I married if I didn't go through that. There are so many things about my life. This will always be a part of me, always. Like, yeah, it's long gone and done and over with, but it will always be a part of me. And I am so grateful that it is a part of me because I took the situation at hand. It took years, but I learned from it. I developed, I grew, and and I changed. And as much as it was awful, I'm such a stickler. Like I talk about those obnoxious friggin' cliches. Everything happens for a reason. People may be like, oh God, that's so stupid. And it's stupid. It's really friggin' stupid. I get it. It's so true. And it helps me get through things. And I think it helps a lot of other people get through things. And so let us have our dumb, stupid cliches, you know? <laughs> You know what they say, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes those reasons don't reveal themselves until some other point in time. Just know that there is a purpose and that purpose is meaningful and has an impact somewhere down the line. I have hope that with the challenging times, more people will find the courage to call out perpetrators of sexual harassment and more people will be supportive of those who do. Elizabeth and those who have come forward are contributing to the collective shift we need as a society to uncover the truth about sexual harassment. It's a challenging issue, but the bigger the challenge, the bigger the opportunity for growth. Elizabeth Miles Graham's book is called You Know What They Say, and it's available on Amazon. It goes into much more detail about her experiences on Wall Street, how she fought the battle against sexual harassment, and how she overcame the mental breakdown that followed. If you liked her story, I recommend getting her book. It's an easy read about a hard subject, and it will make an impact on anyone struggling with a similar situation. Hopefully, it'll get into the right hands of someone looking for empowerment, and we can keep the change growing so that our future generations don't have to experience similar situations. Next time on Toxic Workplace. But I felt so tortured because I didn't want to have to do something, but I was like, okay, do you not want to have to do something, or do you want to do something and at least try, Jessica? But I started saying something to managers and nobody was doing anything about it. And then I was like, wait, this book is about to get ready to be put out. So no, that can't happen. 
And then I got more adamant about it. And then I asked, can I please just see the content of this book and to know more about this book? Because I'm really uncomfortable. And the table of contents was full of such triggering words, things like lynching, things like violence. But I went through and I highlighted and I made myself a colored grid of how many times there was violence in the table of contents and Obama violence and Obama. And I thought to myself, Obama isn't the face of the civil rights movement. Are you joking me? The day after George Floyd happened and I just wanted to come to work and just like be invisible, I was pulled into several meetings where I was being asked my opinion on what to do to make the organization look good. She overloaded me. She put the responsibility of diversity and inclusion on me solely. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Do you have a story you'd like to share on our show? Go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com and click on Be a Guest. Fill out the submission information and we'll be in contact. Your story will be told anonymously. All names are changed to protect the privacy of the company and its employees. We look forward to hearing from you.